Do you want your business to grow faster? Are you open to new and out-of-the-box ways to drive revenues and increase value? How do you imagine the most successful entrepreneurs and business leaders double, triple, or expand their businesses tenfold or more? The answer is deals. This is a weekly podcast featuring conversations with business owners, executives, and leaders as we reveal behind-the-scenes details that give you, our listeners, the confidence to pursue your own deal-driven growth. On the show, we discuss a huge variety of deals, everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My name is Corey Kupfer, and I've been supporting deal-driven growth for businesses for 35 years as a successful entrepreneur, professional negotiator, and attorney. My goal is to help you strategize, plan for, find, and complete deals that will help your company grow faster. Welcome to the Deal Quest Podcast. Let's get started. Scott Carson is a highly sought-after guest and host of the popular podcast, The Note Closes Show. He's an active entrepreneur and an expert in real estate investing, raising capital, and marketing. He speaks regularly at different events and industry conventions focused on real estate, marketing, and podcasting. He also helps thousands of investors and entrepreneurs each year create wealth through his debt-buying classes, podcasts, and coaching. A regular podcast guest, he has recently been named number four entrepreneur to follow in 2022 by U.S. News and by U.S. News Reporter Magazine. An avid sports fan, well, you and I have that in common. He spends his free time traveling, gardening, and making memories. He calls Austin, Texas his home, and I am excited to have Scott Carson on the Deal Quest podcast. I am honored to be here today, Corey. Just glad to give to your audience. Let's have some fun. Let's make some podcast and memories today. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. So so listen, I, I'm gonna we're gonna talk about a type of deal that we haven't talked about yet on this podcast specifically. I mean, you know, Scott's got background in all kinds of real estate investing and other stuff, whatever, but his main focus on is on is on buying notes. And that's something we really haven't covered. So I'm really looking forward to doing that. But before we get there. I'm going to take you back, Scott, to when you were a little kid growing up, maybe 8, 10, 12 years old. What did you want to be? Because my guess is somebody who buys up mortgage notes was not it at that time. But you tell me, maybe I'm wrong. Well, so I grew up in a small town in South Texas called Ingleside, about 3,000 people. It's famous for its Mustang grapes and the founder of the Wishbone Offense actually developed with the Wishbone Offense there. Okay. Uh, Coach Emory, Emory Riddell, before he went on to Texas and make, and the Wishbone offense got famous at the University of Texas with Daryl K. Royal. But growing up then, my dad was my hero. So I thought I'd be working in a hardware store because my parents opened a local hardware store for years. So I was kind of like that kid that did everything on the weekends, you know, around making extra money where it was mow lawns or putting stuff together or working with an electrician or digging ditches. I, you know, loved working there. I was a big baseball fan. Nolan Ryan, you know, was my hero. You know, if you get a chance to watch the new documentary on Netflix on, on Nolan, do it. But, you know, I, I thought I, if I be sports, you know, sports star of some sort, baseball or football would be great. But if not, I thought I'd fall back and be the next Dan Patrick on sports, sir. You know what I mean? No, there we go. Love it. funny, you know, I went to college in mass, to be in journalism and mass and stuff like that. And switched about halfway through into business. And I kind of chuckle that being a podcaster, I often feel like I'm a bit, I'm scratching my proverbial sports center itch by being a guest and then also hosting a regular show as well, too. So that's kind of what I thought would be when I there grew up. There you go. There you go. You know, it's funny. Listen, I grew up as a Met fan, and I'll show my age because I remember when Nolan Ryan was. A, yeah. And at that time, of course, he, he, he could, you know, he still was smoking the ball, but he, but he didn't have the control that he got later yeah. in his career. And, you know, it was always, it was an adventure as to when, you know, like batters were like, 
all right, is he going to strike me out or is he going to like hit me in the head? Not intentionally either, just, you know, because he was wild. Yeah. And of course, as is typical of my wonderful Mets, uh, they usually trade the people who turn out to be great and then trade for the people who are then past their prime. So, you know, the Mets are famous for that. So uh, this was a early example of them giving away a guy who obviously came in, became one of the greats. So I was, an, I, you know, I always liked them back in the day. Any case, one more question looking back. What was your first deal of any type? It could be something small when you were a kid or early in your career. Anything that comes to mind that was a deal. Well, the entrepreneur side of me, when you work in a small town, your dad owns a hardware store, you have always people that come in looking to get stuff done. You know, like I said before, whether it's they need help in rehabbing a property or laying foundation or racing. My first deal like that that really helped me build my blood was I'd started doing work at the time I was in the fourth grade, not only running as a register and, and being able to run a hardware store, but I was actually out going doing a lot of stuff where all my friends were out, you know, going to the beach or getting in trouble. I was working on the weekends. <laughs> and as that grew from the you know, fourth, fifth grade on, it moved into junior high and high school. They, my friends started coming to me and asking me, hey, I need to make some money for Christmas or spring yeah, break, yeah. you know, stuff like that. So I started Implement. So that's really kind of my own blood. Blood is putting my friends to work, working for me at a young age and extra, making extra money and getting more and more stuff done. But I guess that would be the, the first thing, you know, I enjoyed that. You know, my mom and dad taught me work ethic in, in a lot of cases out there. And sure. I think when you, when you mentioned that, that's the first thing that popped in my mind. We were, I was just talking with a friend the other day about, he still to this day remembers me making, putting to work, pulling this like yard of sunflowers were like both six to eight feet tall and there was like ostriches running around wild like something out of the <laughs> and he was getting run over three or four times by these big ostriches that were like just crazy i said but you made some money he goes yeah i made some money i made some money that's it <laughs> i have the same thing I, I i have friends of mine who remind me when i was a 15 year old business owner delivered but for me of course i grew up in in, in brooklyn which is very different and uh, but so what i had them doing was delivering flyers door to door like supermarket circulars, things like that, because I worked for somebody doing that. And then I got my own accounts and I had my friends. So yeah, that entrepreneurial bug and, and the early idea of the fact that you don't have to only sell your own time, you can sell other people's labor. <laughs> I mean, well, you think about it, that's how, you know, that's, that's how you get ahead. It's not just doing yourself, it's leveraging other people's time, whether it's employees or virtual assistants or anything, anything else out there. I mean, that's the wealth of America. All the wealthiest have done it by leveraging other people's time. Yep. And, and helping that out. Yeah. And expertise and all that. All right. So let, let's jump to it now. So now you um, have this focus on, on buying notes. You train people on how to do it as well. You've been doing it for a long time. Let's jump in. Let, let's talk about that. But, you know, so what is that business model? And then I want to backtrack and talk how you got there, because I, I don't think people, you know, most people I know who do anything related to this have come through the real estate end, the more traditional real estate end, right? But just but just explain the business of, of buying notes. Yeah, so we buy, when, when we, there's all sorts of debt out there. Do you owe money on credit card, student loan, your mortgage, your car, your credit cards? You're in the note business. You're just on the wrong side of the payment stream. You're paying in right. you know, versus getting paid out. And what we do is we focus on buying mortgage debt, residential first liens and commercial first lien debt. So we, we get these lists in some different banks and hedge funds, primarily non-performing notes where somebody hasn't paid on their mortgage in, you know, usually nine, 90 days or actually like six years in a lot of yep. cases. You'll see yep. that. So the bank has this debt or these funds have this debt that they're not collecting on or they're, you know, kind of hit and miss. And they'll sell that debt to us at a, at a fraction, you know, 50 cents in the dollar. We'll just use it as a round number. 
And so we buy that debt at 50 cents on the dollar. doesn't mean the borrower owes any less. They still owe the same amount, but we make our money by then reaching out to the borrowers or the property owners and say, hey, what's going on? You know, what's your country Western song? What happened? COVID, you know, do you have a death in the family, divorced, you get sick, laid off, white, you know, don't right. care what the, what the reason that you can't pay, but can you start paying now, give you a, a leg up or we help you out of the hole? Do we need to modify that mortgage? Do we need to modify the terms? Do we, you know, what, what, what's going to make this a win-win situation? And that's Absolutely. what we do, Corey, is we really try to keep people in their houses we can by modifying the loan or, or just try and say, okay, you, you haven't been able to pay for two years because of COVID. Could you start paying out? Great. Well, let's move this two years to the back of my loan. We'll just extend your loan and make it a win-win, you know? And so that's what we do is we buy this debt at a discount. Our goal, number one goal is to get it re-performing, get the borrower back on track, yep. make, make yep. payments. If they make payments for a period of time of at least 12 months or longer, it's now considered a re-performing note. Instead of me, when I bought it at 50 cents a dollar, I can now either A, hold that for great cash flow or B, I can turn around and sell it back to the market at 70, 80, 90 cents of the dollar. And, you know, we make cash flow. We usually got some money on the front end from the borrower. And then we got a nice back-end payment. All of a sense, if we bought it at 50, we sold it at 85. We made a nice chunk there. Nice. That works about 50, 60% of the time. You the borrow back on track. The other 40% of the time, either the borrower is signing the property over to us because they've already left. They don't want to deal with it. You know, and we do a friendly foreclosure or they'll won't deal with us at all. They won't return phone calls. They won't comment or they'll just tell us to go pound sand. You know, give us, tell us they're number one in, in a bird. You know what I mean? And we'll foreclose and go the legal route to take the property back that way. And then when we own the pro- when we hold the property back, then we can do what we want to it, rehab it, sell it, flip it to other investors. Most of the time we, we uh, even sell at the auction. And I was talking to you beforehand. I actually got a deal right now. We're working on in Houston that we're finishing up the rehab on that we got it, you know, 47% of value. And because we bought the debt at such a big discount, it's taken us back to oh, about five months to go finish the re finish the foreclosure and finish the rehab and get it done the market. So, so, so let me ask a question, which I happen to know the answer to, but I want to make sure the audience understands it, which is why is it that the banks are going to sell you the notes, right? Because they're, they're taking a big haircut, right? In theory, they can do all of the things you just talked about, right? And so why is it that a bank will, as opposed to foreclosing, foreclosing or trying to get it re-performing or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, why do they do a deal with you? That's a really great question. That's the number one question we get. Why would a bank sell us a note versus I'm doing it sales? And it's all about leverage and it's all about velocity capital with them. You know, every state has a different foreclosure time frame. Like in Texas, it's the fastest in the country. And you know, we got fast highways, fast foreclosures, and fast executions here, you know? <laughs> where you're at, I mean, or where you're from, no, where you're at now, but where you're from, you know, New York, New Jersey, if that neck of the woods, New, New York is a three year foreclosure time frame. New That's Jersey right. is two years. California is like over a year now, two to foreclose, about 18 months if it's in So the bank would rather, A, take their losses sell us that debt at a discount and they can take that 50 cents on the dollar and go back out and relend it out 10, 12, 13, exactly. 14 times and leverage their money in multitude of ways. Right. Banks don't want to be in the property business. They want to be in that mortgage business and the, and the leverage accounts. You also got to realize most of these banks have been borrowing money at less, you know, 1% or less a lot of times. So if they're making a loan at four five, 6%, they're not making a 4% difference. They're making a 400 or 500% returning their money. So that gives them the flexibility to take a, a haircut, take a bit of a loss, especially the big, um, now I'm not buying from Bank of America, Chase, City of Wells Fargo. Those guys all want you to write like a $50 million check. 
Right. We, we buy from a lot of, you know, regional banks, smaller institutions, hedge funds, REITs. Like I just, I made an offer in just a few minutes ago on from one fund. They had five notes for sale. I made an offer on three with my bids ranging from like eight grand to 80 grand. You know what I mean? So it just varies, you know, what's, what kind of condition the property's in, what state it's in, how long in the, in the foreclosure process that the bank has already started it, or if they haven't started it, you know, what kind of es- estimated repairs we might need if it's vacant. And, and I also have to kind of evaluate what's the likelihood of the borrower to come to the table and reperform and start modifying the loans. Right. So there's a, you know, we're, we're evaluating different things. What, you know, you're not going to walk into your local bank and say, hey, I want to buy notes because I heard on the DealQuest podcast, this guy, Scott Carson, talking about it. <laughs> you, you, we're dealing with like internal departments at the banks. I mean, I used to be a banker for JP, JP Morgan Chase. I didn't even know about this. That's right, right, right. Exactly. So, but as I kind of compare it to me being the, uh, if you've ever watched the movie, The Big Short, I'm like Christian Bale's character. And they're reviewing tapes, reviewing spreadsheets, j- drumming out to Metallica, my headset, wearing shorts and a t-shirt most days. So, yeah, I love it. I love it. And, and, you know, listen, I think, I think more and more people understand the fundamentals on the way this works mainly in, in large part because they watched the various shows and figured out what happened in the great recession in the 2008, 2009. But, you know, it was interesting. I remember when I was a young attorney, like I didn't even realize, and listen, there was a time when banks made a loan, they held the loan. They kept it in, in, in portfolio, right? And then, and then they get paid back and they relent, you know, and that time is long gone for most loans, various types, by the way, not just mortgages, right? But car loans, yeah. all kinds of stuff, right? And, and it's been forever. And, and I worked in my early days as an attorney, I worked on the early mortgage-backed securities deals. And we did like a half a billion dollar shelf registration for the Dime Savings Bank, which is no longer around. You know, we securitized those loans back then. And then they became, by the time, you know, everything went to crap in 2008, you know, it was so funny because... I remember we had we had 280 page pooling services agreements with like 60 pages of defined terms back then, and that and that and that was nothing compared to the what ended up happening by the time the later deals came on the on the way they securitized these loans and stripped them off. But the important part for this conversation, because the whole securitization is a separate conversation, is that you know banks generally are selling off these loans, the bigger banks and big portfolios, like you said, for fifty million. And it's and it's why as a as a borrower you get these notices often, you know that oh you have a new servicer, and by the way, servicer is also separate than the, the, the than the owner a lot of times. Yeah, but sometimes when the ownership changes, the service changes because they use different servicer. But the point is, this is happening behind the scenes all the time, where this debt is being moved around and sold. You know whether it's performing or not performing, initially securitized, you know, or later. So you're you're taking advantage of that market. And listen, I love the business model where the preference right, is that you're trying to get these loans pre-performing and keeping people in their homes, right? Obviously, if that's not the case, you got to do what you got to do. So you said, I think you said, what, about 50, 60% of the time you're able to do that? Yeah. Um, if, if we're buying owner-occupied assets, about 60% of the time, we'll be able to get the borrower back on track at some sort of payment arrangement for the most part. Sometimes it's as high as 75. It just, 60 is what we look at as our average. We can do better than that. We're doing really, really well. During COVID, it was a little tough because the sure. government, you know, two years there where a lot of people didn't make payments. We were lucky. We still had about 80% of our portfolio. They, they were still making payments on time through the entire, during the entire pandemic and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, it's about 60% of the time we can get back on track. And I don't know about in Texas, but in, in various places, there were foreclosure moratoriums, right? And things like that and eviction moratoriums. So yeah, but listen, the thing about it is that you've got, because you're buying the way you're buying. I'm not, listen, every, every business is challenging. I'm not saying it's easy, but, but you have, you have room there, right? To, you know, to, to redo the loan with the borrower to, to, Hey, say, how can you, can you pick it up for now? You don't need to 
you don't need to get that back, you know, arrears that the bank was dealing with to be able to have the, have the, have the loan work for you, right? No, exactly right. A lot of times we're buying debt where they owe more than the property's worth. They're over encumbered. They owe 250000 with 200. I'm not worried about that extra 50K. I'm more worried about that 200. And that's how we bid when we come to it. You know, and we're not bidding on 250. We're bidding on the value of the house to be a 200. So we'll bid at 100 to 120,000. And if we do get them back on track and they, they pay on time for a while, we might recover that extra 50K there above if it, they pay for another five or seven years. Right. It's great. You know, or they, you know, we let appreciation take place. Well, right now what's happened in the country, we have depreciation. We have a price correction taking place. So the fact that we buy at such a beer discount, I won't say recession proves our business, but we're not sweating price drops like a lot of investors are who bought property in the last 12 to 24 months. And they're like, oh my right. God, my property value is going down or my debt service coverage ratio is below one and a quarter because if things are happening. So it gives us, we're really kind of, excited about what's going on in the market. We don't want anything bad to happen, but we see a lot of opportunity. I mean, I'm not going to tell you here, I'm buying, I'm going to buy a billion dollars at a time. I've, I've bought over a billion dollars in debt in my time, but we've really carved out a great piece. There's a great chunk of lenders out there. I mean, you're not going to really buy a one-off note from a, a Bank of America, but right. there's still about 5,000 other lending institutions out there, banks, hedge funds, stuff like that, that will let you cherry pick their portfolio or they'll send you up what we call a tape a spreadsheet excel spreadsheet that may have 100 assets on that you know we'll make offers in 40 and get approved for 20 and by going through due diligence stuff like that we may end up with five to ten and that's a good day for us love it love it love it all right so let's talk about how you got here because I, i'm sure although we haven't talked about this specifically i'm sure you didn't just wake up one day and start buying <laughs> no it's a, it's a, it is an interesting story so back in 2000 2002 i was working for chase bank I was a banker vp of a, a branch location here in austin texas just being a regular banker and i previously worked for a financial services company smith barney you know you've probably heard of them oh. back in the day they had an office here in austin and a buddy that i worked with there who started a mortgage company with a couple of these, I guess you say gurus or real estate educators who are traveling the country, teaching seminars alongside some other, the other folks and they're uh, teaching creative financing. Well, I'm sitting there at Chase, Chase enjoying my job as a banker, number one banker in, te in Texas. My buddy Boyd coming, he said, man, I'm starting this mortgage company with these, these two folks. We're slammed. I really need some help and I trust you. And I'm like, well, okay, let me, let me talk with you. Let me, I went to lunch with them, came back, talked to the spouse. I said, yeah, this is something I want to do. Because I dabbled being a real estate investor a few years ago and fell flat in my face. Okay. Okay. All right. So I was like, I was a little nervous trying to be the next landlord out there. But anyway, when I, I, I remember July 4th, 2004 was my last day basically working at Chase. And the next week I was in California at the LAX Marriott yeah. and was talking about mortgages. And we were doing mortgages in about 30 states and traveling the country. And from 2004 to 2008, I basically had a four-year apprenticeship, Corey. While I was doing origination, my buddy Boyd on the opposite side of the office was a guy, Bob Leonetti and a lady, Jamie Kale. They taught creative financing. They taught the note business, how to create terms, owner financing, stuff like that. They'd also been a mortgage bank, so they'd sold paper during the 80s, during the RTC days. Sure. So they had had a portfolio that went south that, you know, with the values dropping. So. I learned the theories of buying paper. And then when everything started to hit the fan in 2007, 2008, then only were they like, you've got to jump on this. This is something that doesn't come around very often. I also had a couple other investors that had funded some deals of mine on 
clinics and rehabs and stuff like that, that they were like, oh my God, if you're in the note business now, it's a great time because everything's on sale. So when everything hit the fan in 2008, I sold my half of the mortgage company for a buck. Yep. <laughs> but it was worth it at the time then. Yep. And then I just started calling the same banks that I've been originating loans for. Started dialing for dollars, 50 to 100 phone calls a day and started getting in these portfolios or types of assets. One from Wells Fargo Financial that was like 185 subprime loans that I paid for the first one for 500 bucks and then flipped it for scrap metal for 1500 the next day because it was in Detroit, okay? I bought a note on a mobile home in Las Vegas. It turned out to be a cash-flowing brothel asset, basically, <laughs> ladies. Yeah, I bought a, I, I, you know, dialed for dollars for about three weeks to get into. I found the, the, the special asset manager at Capital One Bank. Yep. yep. And they sent me this huge list, 33-page PDF of all their small balance commercial stuff. And there's so much of it. It was in six-point font. I had to actually have a magnifying glass to see everything. And on it was a an eight-unit apartment complex in San Diego. It was worth like $750. They were owed like $650 on it. I bought it for $375. The debt and flipped it for $35,000 profit in 30 days to another investor who took, took ran with the deal. So I was, I was flipping paper at first, but then I started yeah. buying stuff from my own portfolio. And now we, we fast, you know, I bought anywhere from a single note for seven bucks that I flipped for five grand all the way up to 335 notes at one time. And, and we worked on those portfolios, but that's, we're constantly buying notes. You know, we've got a pretty decent portfolio. I don't do it all myself. There's, we have, you mentioned a servicing company. We've got several servicing companies that work for us that manage my portfolio along with attorneys in every state. And then I also have a couple of folks that work with me remotely that are dealing with most of the bars with the bar outreach or contacting the counties to make sure taxes are paid and stuff like that for you. So basically I go find the deals. I talk to investors and raise capital. And then I put it in my team that handles the bar outreach, the workout stuff, which I, of course, direct and say, hey, with these assets, let's go this route, these assets, let's go, you know, A, B, or C, and let's go from there. Yeah, so, so it's interesting because, I mean, one of the things I talk about in this podcast generally is that there's always, no matter what kind of industry or company you are or whatever, there's always a deal you can do. And also, no matter what the economy is, there's always a deal you can do, right? And in yeah. fact, in challenging economies and otherwise challenging economies, there are certain businesses that do really, really well. And, 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 it, and it's funny because, you know, it's, so I've, I've got a buddy. In fact, I interviewed him on the podcast a couple of times, Damon Gersh, who's a totally, this is an analogy, totally different industry. He's in the disaster recovery industry, right? So he makes, he makes money when there are floods and, and, and fires and 9-11 and, you oh. know, whatever. So it's a weird business because like for him to do really, really well, bad stuff has to happen, but, but yet he provides an amazing, phenomenal service because he helps rehab, clean out, whatever, or do all this stuff, right? So to some extent, it, this business or, or other, any business where there's an advantage of things, you know, are, are challenged or distressed is, is, is somewhat similar. So I guess my question for you is, so you started doing this back, you came into the, this time during the, the Great Recession, right? The financial crisis, where a lot of, there was a lot of inventory, right? Unfortunately, because people ran into a lot of trouble, which is a good thing from a business point of view. Although obviously you got to, you got to buy right and the market's not as strong to, you know, be, maybe people are less able to have those notes become performing, right? Or, um, and then values down if, if you have to flip and, and sell it. Then you, then, then we went through this boom period, right? For 10, 12, 12 years, whatever it was. And then we went through COVID, which is this really weird, interesting dip thing. So I'd love to talk about the business evolution and, and how things have flowed through that entire journey. You know, I think it'll be very interesting for us to hear. Yeah. So, I'll, the first thing I guess we talk about is pricing. 
when we were buying stuff back in 2007, 2008, I wouldn't pay above 40 cents on the dollar on the value of the property at that point. Right. Because I was like, oh, I'm not paying more than 40 cents. And that's got to include back tax because there was so much. There was, I mean, if you look at Florida, Florida was basically 30% vacant in a lot of cases. 70 cents of every dollar in Florida was international money that was pulling out of God's waiting room is is what we like to call the sunshine state. Right. (laughs) So that was, I mean, I was getting lists in and new and I I didn't know what I was looking at half the time. It was like, I just had so much stuff coming in and I got lucky that I had some mentors that were holding my hands or I could always pick up the phone and call and kind of go from there. And I just said, let's just make it happen. And I think that the biggest thing that helped me more than anything was I kind of embraced marketing and doing videos. Like if I was working on a deal, I was, I would film a short little video with my, my, my Dell flick camera. You know, remember these things here? I still got it here. And I would share it on YouTube. There's like video, old videos of me walking around an apartment complex here and I'm sweating my ass off in a hundred degrees. But I'm talking about the property and that would help me raise capital for it or help I find a buyer for that kind of deal. So we saw a lot of inventory. I mean, I'm talking thousands and thousands and thousands. And those that, that are in this kind of niche of an industry, we always thought that this market would maybe last three years. Oh, like it'll be done by 2011. Well, yeah. that came in like 12, 13, 14, 15. And, and here's the thing is that there's always distress out there. Yep. Even in the best market, we were, I mean, you look at pre-COVID, we were at about a three, a 2.5% default rate. And yep. all the mortgage, that still equates to several million homes, several million borrowers who can't make their mortgage on time. And so as we track this stuff, like I, when I was first buying, I was buying like 75% of the time was commercial assets, you know, small balance apartment complexes, industrial mixed-use staff. With a little bit of residential as the banks were figuring out what the heck to do with, with the residential staff. Right. Like Lehman Brothers going bankrupt. So their portfolio was on hold for about five years before they released it in 2009 and 2010 where we could bid on. Yep. And that evolved. Then it became more 50-50 and then it's more 75 residential, 25% commercial. And right now it's, it's, it's about, it's, it's 60, 40, 60% residential, 40% commercial. Okay. Small balance stuff is what we see on a lot of things, but pricing obviously has gotten a little bit more expensive as values have gone up. Sure. That's okay. We've had to evolve. I think that the biggest thing I, I would say for my own business model has changed. The first two years, I wouldn't modify anything. I was like, oh no, you're a deadbeat bar. I'm going to foreclose on you. Right. And that was a mistake that I made. Um, right. Right. Because I could have modified a lot of those homes and make cash flow immediately without having to pay attorney fees and rehab costs, you know, and drag stuff out. And so it took me two years, you know, I'm not the brightest guy. It takes a few knocks on my head yes. to do that, playing college football. I maybe get a few cells loose, but I learned, I was like, wait a second, it does make more sense for us. And that's one of the big things that I, when I'm dealing with other investors out there that come from the property side or they like watching flip this house or, you know, flip or flop or like, well, look, you don't really own the property yet. I know you're excited about this property. You fall in love with a white picket fence. You don't own it yet. You got to do the legal action. The borrower still owes it. So you go through a legal process or they sign over to you. Yeah. So it's always a, a big thing when, when I'm talking to people, hey, the property looks cute. It's amazing. But let's look at the numbers. You really got to stick to your numbers. And I, you know, you, you've talked about you here, any type of deal, you've got to take the emotion out of it. It's got to make sense numerically, numbers wise. You know, it's black or white. There's no gray. Is it going to make money or is it not going to make money? Well, I think does not work. In our business, you know, yep. we got to look at where the asset is and what's going on in that market. And that's what kind of makes it a little bit challenging sometimes for folks. They want, you know, they want to just buy in like their backyard. Well, if I was just buying in Austin, Texas, 
I know I'm bankrupt a long time ago because everything in Texas is a lot more expensive because like you said, we got the fastest foreclosure in Austin's one of the hottest markets in the country the last few years. Yep. So this is why we leverage a lot of, you know, a small tool called Google, you know, realtors and team teammates outside of my home area. So I don't have to go look at a property, drive by, we leverage to make things happen. And that's, that's one thing involved. I went from basically just buying in, in one or two areas. So now it's 30 states roughly in most of the major markets. Now I'll look at some smaller markets if I have stuff there, but that's the thing is my market isn't just the one zip code or the city I am, which most people are limited to. Mine's basically 30 states. So if I see something, I can act on it and, and within, within a couple hours have a valuation or something putting eyes on the asset. And then I'm, I could be making an aggressive offer to the hedge fund or the bank and like, you know, they have a bid within 48 hours, which helps them make a decision to say yes or no, or, or maybe go from there. That's great. That's great. Let's take a break from the show for a minute so I can invite you to a new way to determine your deal readiness. I created a fast and easy assessment that will determine exactly how deal ready you are. Once you complete the assessment, I use your responses to identify the obstacles that are holding you back from being a deal-driven growth genius. It's as easy as heading to coreycupfer.com slash assessment. That's coreycupfer.com slash assessment and filling out a few multiple choice questions. I'll be checking in after the episode to see what your results are. Now back to the show. So now you also have some courses, right? Where you train other people on how to do this. Well, first of all, what, what had you decide to do that? You know, I always, you know, I, I've asked this question, you know, because I, I, I just have fun with it because listen, I've, I, I train people in negotiating and I negotiate for a living, right? So I'm, I'm, I, I do the same thing and I know other people who do it. And you sort of like, you know, one way I could phrase it is why did you decide to create competitors for yourself? <laughs> Great question. I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that you asked that because I believe the opposite. I don't believe in competition. I believe that there's enough deal flow to go around. If I'm not good enough to make my own relationships, I mean, like I said before, there's 5,000 plus lending institutions out there that all of them have bad paper at some point. Yep. And not, and 95% of people that go through a class or training of some sort, they never implement anything anyway. That's true. The reason I started teaching, I was literally speaking at an event in Orlando. It was a big short sale summit. And they asked me to come speak there from seeing my blogs and articles and deals. I post, hey, can you come talk about the note business? Like, yeah. So I got up there in front of about 1,500 real estate entrepreneurs in Orlando. I'm speaking about it. I get off stage and I get bombarded with people. They're like, we want to learn this. How do you teach this? Oh, do you have a class? I'm like, oh, yeah, I got a class. <laughs> right. Pulling out my ass. Yeah. How much? 250 bucks for three days in Austin. Oh, thanks. Can you send me like a key? Give me your card. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. So I taught a class. But do we make some money off the classes? Yeah, of course. we. But our number one thing is we make our money off of real estate. Yeah. We make our money off of deals. That's the big, we close next. We don't talk notes. Okay. And that's, I think that's one of the biggest things when you're looking at taking training for somebody is talk to the trainer, talk to the person that's teaching. And are they active in the market in today's conditions? Not something from two years ago or five years ago. There's a lot of those folks out there that haven't closed down a deal in five years. That's right. And we even have in the notes space. I see, I get people calling me up or saying, somebody said, said this, well, that was right five years ago, but we haven't right. had those types of deals for that. So I started teaching as a way, not only to, it, yeah, I made some money, but it also helped educate people on my deals. So, so they were more comfortable in buying stuff. Maybe they didn't buy a, a, you know, 20 notes like I do at a time, but maybe they'd buy one. So I could sell them a note and make a little money, but I could also get a bigger bulk discount because I could, you know, buy 10 and said, sell 10 to 10 of my students at the same time, they're getting a great deal. Cause it's like a Sam's versus Walmart thing. 
Yep. I'm getting a better deal. My bids have more value to the asset to the banks because I'm submitting offers on 20, 30 bigger, versus bigger, bigger, bigger. Exactly. Yep. And now this also gives me eyes and um, help me build a network across the country. So if I got a deal in New, you know, Albuquerque, I can call Gene out in Albuquerque. Hey, Gene, I got this deal in your backyard. Would you could take a look at it? Let me know if you're interested. Great. We can work out a deal where we can partner on the deal together. Or if you're not, I should let me know and I'll make sure and let the hedge fund know what kind of crappy condition it is because so, we can add value to that relationship too. And so that was yeah. the whole thing. So now I, that's helped me. You know, one thing that also helped too, Corey, was back in 2010, I basically sold everything my own, except my truck and my dog. And I drove around the country for what I thought would be 30 weeks, turned into three and a half years of looking at deals and with bankers and stuff like that. <laughs> that helped a little bit too. But yeah, I've, I got classes. It's the biggest bang through the bucket industry where you, you know, I'm a big believer that if you give people the tools to succeed, you don't blow snook up their ass. You're not upsell, 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 that kind of crap or pitching them to death. I'm, I hate that. I like to give people the tools to go out and achieve things. And we're very blessed. We've got a very high success rate in our students because we don't, oh, hey, well, you know what? You can sign up for this, but it's going to be $25 million more for everything. Love it. Love it. I mean, we got some one-on-one coach. Here's the thing. I poured myself and my students. I, I'm really proud today. I got a student today who closed on his first deal. He, he found seven mobile home notes. He flipped them to another guy, made a quick seven grand. He's he's delighted. It's changed. He, he, in two weeks, he made more than he's made in two months. Right, right. You know what I mean? And then I got another guy, uh, Cincinnati, I have Cincinnati Leary, who makes six figures, enjoyed his job, but he's getting tired of that rat race. Well, the last year, he's He's made over six figures and is loving life and stuff like that and looking to leave his job and just do it full time. But everybody's got a different notes are not for everybody. I'm going to be the first one to tell you there. Uh, it's not a get rich quick thing. If you're looking for get rich quick, go play the Powerball. You know what I mean? Right. right. 1.9 billion, you'll end up with 925 million. That's a good day. Yeah, <laughs> right. That's a good day. But your odds. <laughs> uh, but it, it takes work like anything else, you know. So totally. it, I love the way you open that question. I, and I purposely, you know, phrased it that way about creating competitors, you know, because I have fun with it. But basically you answered from the same place that I come from. And my listeners know this, my viewers know this, that, you know, I'm, I'm a, I come from an abundance mentality, right? You know, there's more than enough for everyone, right? I don't shows up in, in whatever. I'm, I'm happy to, I'm happy to train, train people in, in, in negotiating. I've got, I remember, I remember once I, so I've been a member of entrepreneurs organization for a long, long time. And EO is a great organization. It's a peer to peer learning organization and you don't solicit, there's no solicitation. You, you end up doing business with people cause you can do business, but you can't ask for it. No, you're not handing, it's not networking, you're not handing out business cards. And, and, and it's really, you know, people are so generous with their time, whatever. And, you know, and I, I had that experience. I remember there were a couple of situations with lawyers who came in, right? Do what, do what I do in the New York area, you know, which is where I was. I mean, now I spend more time in my place in California, but we were, you know, we have clients all over the country always, but I was a New York based lawyer, you know, comes in and whatever. And what somebody, you know, he's, and he's actually you know, trying to grow his firm and he's trying to figure some stuff out. And a couple of people say, why don't you talk to Corey? And, they, and they're like, why would Corey talk to me? He's like, you know, he's, he's a bigger player than me, but he does what I do. Why would, and, you know, of course he reached out to me after people encouraged him and I just, Gave him all kinds of, I don't even know, I didn't have a course. I just helped him out, right? Whatever. Yeah. And he said to me, I was honestly a little afraid to call. And I said, listen, I said, I get it. A lot of people come from a scarcity mentality, you know, and 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 that's where they live. And in, 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 in the context of scarcity, it would be crazy for me to, to to help you out. But I come from an abundance mentality. There's more enough, there's more than enough for all of us, right? You 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 doing well is not going to make me do not not as well. In fact, I believe whether it's energy, karma, building relationships, however you want to look at it, 
it's actually probably going to help me in the long run. It's not the reason I'm doing it. It's not a quid pro quo. I'm doing it out of you know, a place of service. So I love the way, you know, you're coming from it there. And then, yes, obviously it's natural. You're going to end up partnering with some of those folks. And, you know, and I can tell in your voice, like it's just the satisfaction factor, right? When you gave those examples, the stories of your students who made $7,000 or six figures, whatever, it's just, you know, it's just, it's just, a, it's a great day when you, when you, it's, when you've helped somebody and you see that they've applied it. Amen to that. And that's what I get so excited about because when you and I've always found that the people that are more successful, they're the more giving of time because they don't want people to make the same mistakes that they made along the way. hundred percent. Yeah. It's not always that way, but it, it is for a lot of folks. And it's funny in, in this industry that I'm in, we've got some peers that have been around for a while. You know, they're, they come from a different mentality. They're like, oh, well, Scott, your generation is all about to give, give, give. Ours, we don't want to give it away. I'm like, well, you can either change your mentality or somebody's going to, Use a tool called Google to get to hell and find the same information online somewhere. You know what I mean? So you might as well be a, a resource for people. And otherwise, if you're trying to nickel and dime to death, they can smell that after a while and they're going to go somewhere else and you don't want that. I'm a, I'm a big believer in every relationship has to be a win-win out there yep. for it to be really fruitful. If, if yep. only one side's winning, it's not going to be a long-term relationship. And I'm a big believer in long-term relationships that those, those breed values and, and not be just profits and sales and stuff like that, but much longer term rewards out there. And that's what we really need to take place in this, in this world today. Absolutely. So what are, what are maybe the top two or three mistakes people make in the, in the note business? Well, I'll, I'll say just as an investing side is a lot of people make the mistakes that they don't embrace marketing right off the bat. And it, for us to find note deals, you've got to market to banks, you've got to market to hedge funds. We leverage LinkedIn a lot. We're dropping drip marketing campaigns, emails out to these asset managers on a monthly basis. And so a lot of people don't have the patience to follow up with that. You know, 80% of sales comes after the fifth contact. So I tell people, you gotta be marketing, you know? And then they also don't market for, to raise capital. A lot of people will only look at what's in their bank account. And they're like, well, I only got like 50 grand in my retirement. I can't buy a note. Well, you can buy one or two there, but guess what? There's millions of people out there that have money sitting on the sidelines that's depreciating <laughs> right now that is making nothing that would gladly partner with you for a six or 8% return on their money for 12 or 24 months. You know, yep. Yep. you just got to share the deals and, and get the worst of marketing, you know, for more deals and marketing for capital, the biggest thing. And, the, and then the next biggest thing I would say is, is people, like I said before, they come and approach it like a, a fix and flipper. They're looking for the property. They're not coming for the banker's mindset, which is a little bit different. Yeah. 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 And I love, and I love that my people, my listeners and viewers know that I, at least every other show, I bring up the concept of the mindset comes up because so I'm a, I'm a huge believer in, listen, you mentioned the stat and it's true. It's true. Not only in your industry, it's true in other industry, every personal growth guru. And I've taken, I, I I'm a, I'm a lifelong learner, right? I, yeah. I've taken business growth, personal growth, spiritual growth, like you name it, right? I do it, but I do it, go apply it in my life. Right. And then like, I'm not some, some people are seminar junkies, right? And, and you're like, where's, you know, you're still poor, you're unhappy, you're not in a relationship, you're out of shape, you're like, what Like, what are you, what are you doing, right? So you got to go apply. But my point is that every person I know who is a successful trainer will tell you that 95% of the people are going to do pretty much nothing with what, what they're learning in that room. And maybe three or three or 4% will, will apply it, you know, at a reasonable level. And then you'll have your one or 2% of people who really, like, really take it and run. And so for me, the game is not played. I mean, obviously skills, training, all that stuff is super important. The, the, the tools, 
But for me, the game is played initially on the mindset level because yeah. I don't care what you learn. If you're not going to apply it, which is a mindset thing, what are, what's stopping you when you walk out of that seminar and you don't and you have all these notes or whatever you do, and then you don't do anything with it. That's a mindset conversation. And it's why I tout, he passed away recently, but people like Bob Proctor's work who talk yeah. paradigms, like I'm, I'm a huge Proctor guy, you yeah. know, and, and, and many, many others. So talk you know, a little bit about the mindset difference of the people who are successful and who aren't in this business. So here's the thing I want to bring up, you brought Bob and I got a chance to show the stage a couple of times with Bob and spend some time in San Diego with a few years back. And I didn't know that Bob made most of his money to begin with in the janitorial services. That's right. He was a janitor. He was a janitor. You know what I mean? So if he can clean up sh his shit, you all can clean up your shit too. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but the mindset is, is, is so key because like we did an episode recently podcast talking about imposter syndrome. A lot of folks come from the corporate nine to five where they're used to being told what to do. And they, they told, well, that's not your job. Don't do it. If they do anything extra, they get penalized, which I don't understand that in the corporate world, but that's just me. But you look at the most successful people, are the ones that get up the fastest from mistakes, they make the most amount of mistakes, but they learn from them but they're also the most coachable. They listen, they soak up things like a sponge. And that's what you have to really do. We, we struggle, everybody struggles with negative talk in our head. Everybody does on an everyday. It's a matter of how soon you can tune that out or, you know, get that rebound figure of getting, you know, get knocked down seven times, get up eight times and realize there's always a, a silver line to some things. I mean, I think if someone that comes from faith in that God doesn't, for me, I'm a big believer that God doesn't give me anything more that I can't handle. Yep. You know what I mean? And sometimes when you want to find success, you've got to grow mentally into that space first. If you want to go from making a hundred grand a year to making seven figures, you first got to get your mind right into that seven figure business model. Cause it's a whole lot of different decisions and things that you're doing at that upper level basis. So that's, I love what you said about that because it is the most successful people you look at sales wise or whatever it is. It's they got the game right. They got the mindset right. They are, they realize overnight success is like an eight year process. You know, Damon John, <laughs> I heard him say that one time. He's like, yeah, I'm an overnight success. It took eight years of waiting tables at Red Lobster and going home at night, working on yep. food and yep. sleeping on the floor. And that's what you, that's one thing that I think, especially our younger generation, and I've talked to a few colleges and stuff like that, and they have this, everything is so instant gratification. Give it to me now, deliver it on demand, you know, all this stuff. And when it comes to real world, it takes time, it takes patience, and it takes follow-up and it takes gumption just to realize that no, because you're going to be told no a lot, but no doesn't mean really no. It means not now. And you realize the more you follow up, the less, the more no's you get, the sooner you'll get to a, when I was gone, making my first batch of calls back in 2007 to banks. I was sitting in my office and the phone wasn't ringing in the mortgage department anymore. So I, I was calling banks and I called 53 banks and I got 53 no's. I'm like, Man, this is the birds. I'm not going to do this. Well, I made, I said, I'm going to give them one more phone call before they did. I made one more phone call. And lo and behold, I talked to this lady, Kim, on the other line. She and the president of this lending company were the last employees. As soon as she sold this portfolio and five million loans in Houston, she was laid off. So she was not having a good day. Right. <laughs> but that call, trying to do a $50,000 profit for me. I was able to flip that portfolio, make five points and split with a couple of people. I was like, aha, every no I got was worth a thousand bucks to me there. Okay. And so you have to realize that, that every, you know, I've seen some people that take playing cards and they shuffle them up and they, 
you know, one, two, three, they should check, like, you know, rolling them out one ordinance. And when you hit like a three and a three of ace or three spades shows up, oh, you have a hit. It's kind of that process in the sales aspect. You got to go through so many of those to get a yes. And once you figure out that right ratio, then you can gamify your marketing, gamify your strategy calls, whatever it might be to realize, okay, I need 20 no's to get a yes. And every yes is worth 25 grand or 50 grand to me. So that law of numbers is so important these days, but so many folks say just like, oh, I, I, I'm only going to call 10 banks and give up, or I'm going to get my first no, or I'm going to send my email out and I get, get one ugly email and I'm going to give up because this is not for me or it can't be done. And that's, yep. you can't do that. You want to be successful at anything in life. No, no, no question about it. Amen. All right. So you mentioned the podcast tell people a little bit more about what, you know, what it is, what I'm sure they can find it on all the players, but give a little bit about the podcast. Yeah. The No Closer Show podcast is our megawatt blowtorch, 725 episodes over five or six years. We were cranking them out an episode each day, like through the first three years, it kind of slowed down a little bit, but we've recranked it about, we're recranking out a new episode every day. Wow. Over what we just surpassed the 1.2 million download mark. Pretty excited about that. But it's half the time with me interviewing people, vendors, folks in their industry that can help them in the mindset, the business, the marketing side, or the other half is me teaching a lesson of some sort. So yeah, I'd love for you guys to listen to it. But here's the most important thing. You're listening right now. Corey is kicking ass and taking it. So you all know that here on the DealQuest podcast. So while you're listening to this, click on over, hit the subscribe button if you're not subscribed, but also scroll down a little bit, hit that leave a five-star review for Corey. He's kicking ass and digging his We as podcaster, this is your opportunity to tell Corey how much you love him. So love. we as podcasters love to see this. So make sure you leave a review and hit the subscribe button for Corey as well. See, now, now, now he, see, he's not only got to tell you, but he's got to give an example of how you market and how you, right, and, and how nobody's a competitor and it's all big up everybody else. I, I, love, I love that you just did that. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it, Scott. No problem. So, uh, all right, cool. So, so in terms of your other stuff, whether it's your courses or, you know, um, investing in the bit, whatever it is, websites, other contact information, what do you want to get? So if they go to weclosedesk.com and find about everything there, that's weclosedesk.com. But if you're interested in a little bit more information, I've got a special gift for you. If you go to noteweekend.com, I teach a one day class every third Saturday of the month and it's uh, normally 99 bucks. I'll give it to you guys for free If you go to noteweekend.com. Hit the sign up button, the green button there, sign up, leave information. And then on the checkout page, just type in DealQuest. No space, all caps, DealQuest, no space. And you'll get the class for free. If you can't make it live, don't worry. I'll send you the replays. You can watch and learn anyway. So appreciate that offer to our audience. That's so generous to you. All right. My final question on the podcast is always about my highest value in life, which is freedom. And for me, that means everything from freedom for, in the world, from for all people, from oppression to the reason why I haven't had a boss in decades. What does freedom mean to you and how does it impact your life and business? So freedom is being able to do what you want when you want is the best way I look at it. And everybody has a different number. Some people will say, oh, you got to have $4 million in the bank. No, no, no. If, you're got, if your bills are $3,500 a month and you got $3,500 a month in cash flow coming in that you ain't going to work for, that's freedom. Right. So that's my definition of doing what you want when you want without having somebody determining what your worth is because what's so great about this country especially where we're at right now you, you can determine what your worth is if, you, if you're yes yeah, you're working for a job that's fine but you have the opportunity with side hustles and the internet and starting a podcast or whatever you might want to do on the side do, do, do a hustle flipping stuff from ebay or you know habitat for you know whatever you might see freedom is doing what you want when you want and if you're not liking your job or liking your career where you're where you're at that's all on you you, you have the decision and you're where you're at today. 
we're all at the, we're at today because the decisions we have made on a day in day out basis. So you still have a decision to change your direction, change your path and go find freedom in one, one form or another and reach out to folks like Corey, myself. Hey, we're always glad to help give you a counsel and what to take. Don't get advice because you can get advice from anyone, your grandma, your uncle, Jimmy Bob, <laughs> Joe down at the bar. But advice is like assholes. Everybody has one. Doesn't mean it's a good one. So seek counsel from people that are in a position or where you want to be. And I guarantee you most of the time, they're going to be glad to give up a few minutes of their time to help you on that path. Well, Scott Carson, from the moment we were on our pre-call, we said this is going to be fun and it's yeah. been fun. Scott, thanks so much for uh, being a great guest on the DealQuest podcast. Honored to be, man. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me on this episode of DealQuest, where we help you understand how deal-driven growth can be your ticket to freedom. I want to invite you to a unique way to tap into the wisdom and experience of the DealQuest community. Join the DealQuest Deal Den Zoom calls, a free monthly 90-minute mastermind. In the mastermind, we address all the challenges you may be facing and help support you with the opportunities that may arise in terms of deal-driven growth. You will get input not only from me, but all the members on the call will collaborate and serve each other in a mastermind format. To sign up for the free mastermind, go to www.coreycupfer.com slash dealden. That's coreycupfer.com slash dealden. I'll see you there. I'm Corey Kupfer. Until next week, wishing you the freedom and financial prosperity that I know your deal quest will bring.